Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 30th of January. This is episode 143. Loaded show coming up. We've, we've got Evan Mulholland right here with us. We're going to be talking about the top story of the day uh, from the IPA's perspective. We've also got Matt Ridley on the show. One of my favorite interviews we've ever done. Maybe my favorite interview. Uh, just It's like everything that Pete and I talk about and we like talking about and it's just... It makes you feel so good about the direction of the world and where things are going and, uh, and yeah, it was just awesome. Oh, no, exactly right. You're about to ask me what my favourite thing was. That was my favourite thing. Yep. One of our best interviews ever. Also a bloke try, just trying to get to work with his strides off, which we'll talk about towards the <laughs> That's end. That's not Mad Ridley. That is not Mad Ridley. <laughs> that is not Mad Ridley. That is a separate thing. All right. Uh, so, like, like, uh, so we've got Evan here. We want to talk about this story because obviously like the whole world is talking about two things, which is Kobe Ryan's death and also coronavirus, neither of which – uh, exactly young IPA podcast stories we can't imagine uh, but Evan we do want to talk about this story because this is something that's you know uh, w- was just fun it's been a tough week from a few perspectives but this is just fun so Evan Malcolm Turnbull on the bushfires why don't you tell us like where this started well uh, over the last couple of weeks Malcolm Turnbull has really piped up uh, on on climate change and the need to address climate climate change because of the bushfires. So he's uh, ceded to the media narrative that it's all Scott Morrison's fault. Uh, He's had a big go at uh, Scott Morrison and he actually went to Davos, the big sort of uh, international climate conference, um, and was swanning around there doing interviews with the BBC. He did an interview with The Guardian as well here in Australia, basically saying that, you know, Scott Morrison should take advantage of this crisis and act radically on climate change to phase out coal completely from Australia, which would just be an absolute economic disaster any way you look at it. Um, And he was saying, you know, it's not about... uh, These fires are directly linked to climate change and it shows a trend. Uh, Basically, parallel with the arguments that the Greens have always made. So I thought, you know, Malcolm Turnbull was... Prime Minister for three years, right? And the Greens make this link every single year and they make this you know, disgraceful claim during the worst parts of an emergency, like a bushfire, it's all to do with climate change and this shows a need for climate action, which is completely wrong, uh, first of all, uh, but frankly insensitive. So what did Evan, the undertaker, Mulholland, decide to do about that? I, is that I, what we're going with, the undertaker? Because I like it. Yep, yep. Okay, yeah, I'll take it. Um, to the so, shadow realm. Yeah. So I thought he's definitely said it. Like the Greens have come out at one point when he was Prime Minister and said it. So I uh, simply just hopped onto his website and I um, I ser- used the search button on Malcolm Turnbull's website. You can go to his website right now for those uh, watching or listening. Um, and I typed in Malcolm Turnbull, uh, climate change, uh, Greens. And it came up with a transcript of a press conference he gave in 2018 uh, when terrible uh, Tathra bushfires happened. I think about 60 or 70 homes were destroyed. Um, and Richard Dinantale came out and said, this shows the need to act on uh, climate change. Uh, the Prime Minister should do more. And Malcolm Turnbull uh, was actually quite right in saying uh, no particular event can be linked to climate change, whether it be a flood or a fire uh, or, you know, strong winds. Um, and uh, he's dis- that he was disappointed in the Greens for politicising an event like bushfires. 
So you see these two things and you decide, I'm going to take this to a journalist, we're going to get this written up. Yeah, so I, was, I, I, uh, I kicked it around, um, <laughs> so to speak, uh, to, to a few journalists and it, you know, it was on Sky News, it was in The Australian, uh, uh, it was all over the place and I, I think really highlighted um, uh, the hypocrisy of Malcolm Turnbull and you know, Gideon uh, posted about it on Twitter which got heaps of traction as well. So um, it was uh, good to see it. You know, really exposed for what it was. Yeah. So, do you reckon this is Turnbull changing his mind, or like we have this, and then we've also got Tanya Plibersek and the quiz later in the show, which is this: a politicians just politicians, and they'll just say whatever it takes to, you know, just support the body line, or just get things over the edge, or just protect their own interests. Yeah. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was right in 2018 with what he was saying. Now, he's simply just—it's uh, all about legacy for him. It's all about the fact that he got done over uh, again because of his, you know, climate policies, uh, because of the, the neg. Technically, I think he got done over by his own incompetence, but that's a different story. Um, and this is, you know, trying to craft the narrative that he was the one who wanted to act on climate change, and it was the dinosaurs in the Liberal Party that, you know, brought him down. Yet, you know, he had people nodding behind him. He was saying exactly the same things that Scott Morrison is saying now, that it was all about sort of hazard reduction of fuel load uh, that needs to be worked on. And he's now, now that he's not in a position to do something, criticising Scott Morrison for saying exactly the same thing as the bloke who is in a position to do something. Like, it's just ridiculous. So now this is what you love doing this stuff, right? This is what, this is your bread and butter. You love being, you know, either cutting people down or being a kingmaker in the Australian political scene, that's why we call you The Undertaker. Is this the most fun you've had at work or is there something even more fun than this? Oh, I think it was pretty, pretty, pretty fun to see. There's been a few other occasions where we've, uh, we've knocked out a uh, you know, poll. I love the Australia Day polls as we saw last week and, um, and, and seeing something go from an idea that's talked about in the office to the front pages is, um, is you know, a great part of my job and I love doing it. Uh, all right, so rank the people that have been more annoying. Uh, sorry, out of the two people that are, were Prime Minister and now just seem to be just annoying people, Kevin Ryan and Malcolm Turnbull, who has been the more annoying out of office? Good question. Malcolm Turnbull is really, you know, punching for that gold medal. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd almost say they're, they're equal. Um, you know, you've got a situation now where we've got – let's compare our four most recent former Prime Ministers – You've got, you know, Julia Gillard and whatever you thought about her in office, she's handled herself pretty gracefully post-politics, doesn't 100%. get involved in domestic politics. Yep. Um, you know, a chair of Beyond Blue, helping uh, poor um, uh, countries get uh, and people get access to education. Tony Abbott literally fighting fires uh, for the last few months. Uh, and both Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd tweeting about climate change and tweeting about News Corp. Yeah. That's it. That's all. And both living in New York or hopping between New York and Australia. Yeah, it's just like, it's, it's hard for me because you go, Malcolm Turnbull's currently probably louder just because of the fact that he still has more influence. But there's just a special level of disappointing in Kevin Rudd writing letters to Jacobin magazine. It's like how just <laughs> self-policing he is on just, you know, typing his name into Twitter, just figuring out any what mention. comes out, just any mention going, right, right, that is, that's today's morning. We are going to tell Jacobin magazine who's boss around here. Yeah. So I reckon... 
like Turnbull's more influential, but Kevin Rudd's just a bit more like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> Pete, what do you reckon? Uh, well, I mean, like Malcolm Turnbull's more recent and also, you know, Evan's a big coalition man. So he'd feel more about Malcolm Turnbull because he took over his party. Whereas Kevin Rudd, you know, you always expect the other team to be They're both annoying. Just, you know, old men yelling at clouds. Yes. Basically. <laughs> uh, and then locked up with each other. All right, so sweet. So people can read like uh, Gideon's article, which went off. <laughs> Gideon's article on our website. Everyone uh, really liked that article. So go read that at ipa.org.au. Evan, thanks for coming on. And we're going to have the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort mm. play you off, uh, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite things we do here. Excellent. Thanks, thanks Undertaker. <laughs> Okay, that is the snort of freedom, Grunt the Pig, uh, telling us that we're about to do the heroes and villains segment. So we'll start off with the heroes, the people that have stood up for freedom around the world this week, and we want to acknowledge them. Pete, who have you got? I've got man who confronted Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) So (laughs) we get a name. He's not, no, he's unknown. No one knows who he is. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, is going for the Democrat nominee for president. Yep. Uh, She's proposed to cancel $640 billion in student loans, up to $50,000 a person. She says her plan. Sign me up. Yeah, exactly. She says her plans would benefit 42 million Americans, but it does not address the millions of Americans who have worked hard to put their kids through college or kids who paid for themselves to go through college. One Iowa father confronted her at a recent event during the week. Here he is. My daughter's getting out of school. I've saved all my money. She doesn't have any student loans. Am I going to get my money back? So you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money, and those of us that did the right thing get screwed. No, it's not anybody got screwed. Of course we did. My buddy had fun, bought a car, went on vacations. I saved my money. He made more than I did. But I worked a double shift, worked extra. My daughter's work, she was 10. So you're laughing. Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. Now, my favorite part of this, James, yep. is when she goes, of course not. Of course <laughs> you won't be paid back for your hard work. Yeah, what do you think? This is fair? It's yeah, not fair. We're going to reward effort? Yeah. How quaint. Yeah. So, <laughs> what a novel concept. So, yeah. Yeah, well, like, the thing is, this guy gets screwed over even harder by this deal because, you know, you can only pay this guy back money, but you can't pay him back like, oh, you didn't go on that holiday because yeah. you wanted to, you know, like, you can't, like, not, you can't give a guy a holiday. You know what I mean? You can't give a guy a holiday with it's in, the past. in that time. It's gone. Yeah. It's not coming back. So you can only do the money. You can't do the emotional stuff as well. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so to Iowa man, you want to hear it this week. And All his right. daughter, because she paid for it as well. Now, Pete, we? I uh, gave you crap for not knowing who this guy was, but mm-hmm. I also don't quite... I'm not able to like quite narrow in on a singular person that is my hero this week. Yeah. Uh, it might wheel around to Joe Biden eventually. Uh, stick with me. But uh, so anyway, like there was this whole thing this week because Joe Rogan on his podcast said he'd vote for Bernie Sanders in the election. Which is a touch disappointing. It, well, yeah. Um, so he... Like so, he says that he says I reckon Bernie Sanders. Uh, I, I'd vote for him. Then this like hard left freak out on Twitter comes out, and you know, and all these papers as well, because Joe Rogan doesn't think that transgender athletes should compete against female competitors in the MMA. Uh, and people say you can't accept Bernie Sanders shouldn't accept Joe Rogan's support because he's a transphobe, and. Like, I like it and they're my heroes because I don't want Bernie Sanders president and any efforts to stop that of the hard left eating itself and people fighting this one out over anything else Mm. helps. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to Joe Biden who tweeted this like moments after uh, the Joe Rogan thing came out. 
uh, which for people listening at home is uh, him tweeting, let's be clear, transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. There's no room for compromise when it comes to basic human rights. I, I just want to ask Joe Biden, when did you believe that? Was it like 10 years ago? Was yeah. it five years ago? Was it when the social media intern ran in with this story and said we should do something about this? Yeah. Like when did it become the defining moment of our time? There's been a lot of politicians uh, changing their views in this Very episode. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be a recurrent theme in this episode. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I, Bernie Sanders supporters slash detractors are freaking out that Joe Rogan, the biggest podcaster in the world, his support might make him too electable yeah. to audiences that might not vote for Bernie Sanders anyway. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this, for this, uh, they that genre of people are my hero of the week. So just to be clear, it's it's the left eating itself is yes, your hero. Yes, you should deep, have done man. that one. That's quite deep. <laughs> yeah, thank you for putting it in uh, exact words rather than just babble <laughs> I came out with. No, I'm impressed. That's a good one. All, All right. right. Now, we've been looking for a new name for Villain of the Week, James. So we used to have the Walter Peck Villainy Award. We didn't like it that much, so we've changed it. As you guys know, I've been showing this footage fairly regularly. Ancient rebellion protests enter their sixth day. The activists are trying to pressure the Australian government. Now, that is the Extinction Rebellion protesters, as we've spoken about many times on so this show. Over this, but... In October, doing a fake nudie run, yep. where they said we're doing a nudie run, we're going to save the planet, and then none of them were nude. I'm sorry, people, that is not a nudie run. So as a result, James actually had the brainwave. I'm surprised that he said we should name the Villain Award the Extinction Rebellion Fake Nudie Run Award. I did so, not have that idea. <laughs> so that's don't what we're going to do. I don't want this clip played. Uh, so, James, if you want to get to the bare facts of your pick for oh this boy. week. The bare <laughs> oh, facts. No. <laughs> I was wondering why you were giggling for an hour at your desk. <laughs> oh, the bare facts. All right. For, sorry. My uh, villain of the week this week. Sorry. Uh, people might have seen there was a story that uh, Mike Pompeo was being interviewed by an NPR, uh, NPR journalist on the trip. Uh, sorry, yeah, Mike Pompeo is being interviewed by an NPR journalist yeah. and Mike Pompeo gets so angry with her about this Ukraine and Russia and uh, deal that he eventually makes staffers come over with a blank map and says, you know what, point to Ukraine right now if you're such an expert, point to Ukraine. And oh, so then the NPR the roast uh, immediately points to Ukraine and then walks off. Power move. Yeah, that's um, good. So, <laughs> the, like, people are talking about this and I just want to play this clip from... A CNN show hosted by Don Lemon, where you've got panelists Rick Wilson and Wahajid Ali. They're talking about this conference, and they just want to talk about how, they, like, they sort of reveal how they feel about Trump <laughs> voters. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. Mm. But see if you can pick it up. Playing to their audience, uh, you know, the, the the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump um, that, that wants to think that 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 Donald Trump's a smart one, and they're oh, y'all y'all elitists are dumb. <laughs> You, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling. That is just Trump's campaign ad for 2020. Like oh, just yeah. play that. You don't need any music. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything at all. You just play that clip. Absolutely right. When people ask, you know, I can't understand why people vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, that's why. That is the reason. <laughs> like, that is what they think of people. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that is my villain of the week. Yeah, and also that host, he was doing that thing. Like that, The thing about that was it actually wasn't that funny. No. He's doing that thing hardcore, whereas if I just laugh hard enough. Yep. Everyone will be convinced this is funny. Yes, exactly. It wasn't. Like, which is a podcast staple from our perspective. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know what you're doing, mate. I know what you're doing. <laughs> Good one, Pete. Or right, my, your villain of the week. My villain of the week, my Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run award of the week. Uh, Dr. James. Of the week. Dr. James Mukey, Australian of the Year 
this week. Uh, now, so he's an Adelaide eye doctor who founded an organisation called Sight for All that trains eye doctors from developing countries and impacts one million people a year. So obviously, I've made him my villain of the week. Yes. Uh, and I was reading... You shock jock. I was reading his bio. I'm like, why am I doing this? Anyway, <laughs> the reason I'm doing this is because no sooner had he rightly won the award for all his great work than he said, I think we need to take sweet products away from checkout counters, uh, particularly when they're discounted. We've got to make them less accessible to the public. He said a sugar tax should be on the table to address the sugar that we're apparently eating too much sugar, blah, 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 blah. It will be nice to have an Australian on the year that doesn't use their platform to immediately introduce you know, more laws and more control over us. I hate this stuff that I'm an expert. I know what's better for these silly poor people. I'm an expert in one area of life. Therefore, I know the economic and political solutions for everything else. So James, that's Mickey. why they should make you Australian of the Year because well, you would only just get up and encourage people to froth. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> that's your entire space. Just to live your life. Yeah. So no, James Mookie, reluctantly, despite all your good work, you have my Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain award for this week. I just want to highlight one quote from that article yep. uh, where he's talking about the problems with sugar, but he says this, sugar is cheap and ubiquitous, so it's readily accessible to everyone. You walk into a service station, there's a counter of lollies as you walk in. Now, is that a point for him or against him? Because that sounds awesome. <laughs> that is. I mean, it is awesome. Yeah. How good is that? You walk into a service station and there's just a million things that taste nice. Uh, readily available confectionery. Yeah. You beauty. The beautiful world. All right. Uh, speaking of things that are readily available and plentiful oh. in a free market world, we'll now go to our interview with Matt Ridley. That is a segue for the ne- like that For is, the ages. That is a segue for the ages. And now I'm tripping over it by explaining my genius. <laughs> so let's just go to that interview before I make this worse myself. Yeah. Okay, we now welcome on to the show someone I am really excited to speak to. Matt Ridley, author and columnist, member of the House of Lords, board member of the awesome Human Progress, which you can check out at humanprogress.org, and author of the also awesome The Rational Optimist. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Awesome. So, uh, in your recent Spectator article, uh, which Pete and I absolutely loved, and everyone should read it, if you don't have a Spectator uh, UK login, it's also available at Human Progress, I think. But anyway, uh, you wrote, you said that the 2010s were the best decade ever. Now, why is that? Yeah, well, um, this came about because I wrote a book in 2010 called The Rational Optimist, saying the world had been getting better, not worse, and was likely to continue doing so. And that was quite a brave thing to say at the time, because the world was still trying to recover from a terrible deep recession that some people thought might be the beginning of a Great Depression for the globe. Um, uh, but it, looking back 10 years later, I, I suddenly realized that actually the numbers suggest that this was the best decade ever which is quite remarkable when you think how gloomy we were throughout most of it about everything from, uh, you know, the from climate change to uh, the uh, euro crisis to the wars in Ukraine to the wars in Iraq, etc, uh, etc. Et so uh, Syria, I should have an- added to that. So a lot of bad things happened in the 2010s. But if you look at the main numbers on human progress, how many people were in poverty at the end of the decade compared with the beginning, that number roughly halves. Um, if you look at child mortality, the greatest measure of misery anybody can think of, it continued its relentless fall. If you look at growth uh, of incomes in Africa, the poorest continent, you see remarkable improvements. So if you look at humanity as a whole, this was a very, very good decade. So, Matt, I didn't realise that actually that article was a bit of a victory lap for you. So congratulations on having uh, those predictions being correct. Now, we hear a lot. Oh, actually, one of the things we loved about the article was that 
it said kind of in, in, in another way that we can have economic growth and we can have uh, environmental protection. We have people like David Attenborough saying that you can't have that. We have Greta Thunberg saying we're in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Is economic growth and the environment a zero-sum game or do they uh, help each other? Right. Well, that's, what, that, that's the issue that I specifically focused on in, in, in that recent article. Um, uh, and it, to me, this is a, uh, a remarkable and extraordinary phenomenon, um, uh, which are, people are beginning to wake up to, mm. namely that economic growth is the best hope for saving the environment. Now, that might seem paradoxical to people. And indeed, I quote David Attenborough as, as saying, anyone who thinks that infinite growth on a finite planet is possible is either mad or an economist. That's intended as an insult to economists. Um, but actually, I think he's wrong. And the reason for that is because as we grow, we use fewer resources, not more. The whole point of economic growth is to be more efficient in our use of resources. So if you take land, for example, we're using 68% less land to produce a given quantity of food averaged over the whole world as we did in uh, the 1960s. That's an enormous improvement in the productivity of land, and it means we actually need less land now to feed 7 billion people than we needed to feed 3 billion people when I was born. That's a, a reduction in our demands on the planet, and it spares land for nature. Another example is water. If you take uh, predictions made in the 60s and 70s for how much water we were going to need in the United States, this is specifically um, by now, we're using a lot less than that. And I also give the you know the trivial example of a of a, a, a drinks can you know an ordinary aluminium drinks can uh, now contains thirteen grams of aluminium. When they were first invented in the early nineteen sixties, there were about eighty grams in a, in a drinks can. You know, it's getting thinner, it's getting smaller. We're using less steel in buildings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So actually, the evidence suggests that the countries that are doing best in conserving and repopulating wildlife in their in, in their countrysides. Uh, are the rich countries. It's the poor countries that are still cutting down forests uh, and still uh, seeing reduced numbers of, of animals and plants and so on. And the thing for me is that when you have these environmentalists saying uh, we need to put all these protections in place and stop the economic growth, it's, uh, you know, it, they're being their own worst enemies. If you're really concerned about conservation, then you need to get out of the way of the development of the free market to make these new industries. Well, um, if you think about it, I mean, I... There's, I have a rather glib way of putting this, which is that um, why is it that uh, wolves are increasing in number in the world, uh, lions are decreasing, and tigers are now roughly holding their own? The tiger population is slightly inching up at the moment. Uh, and the reason is because lions live in poor countries, wolves live in rich countries, and tigers live in middle-income countries. And when you think about it, in Africa, uh, a lot of wildlife is in competition with human beings. Uh, People are still having to go into the forests either to get bushmeat uh, or to get firewood for uh, cooking over and so on. If instead they were going to shops and they were getting their uh, energy from gas or uh, something like that, then they would then there would be much less demand uh, on um, natural habitats. Uh, and if you take the environmentalist prescription that we should all go back to nature and get in touch with nature and sort of live harmoniously in nature. Seven billion people going back to nature would be a disaster for nature. In fact, some of the worst extinctions uh, 
the, the biggest wave of extinction was caused by Stone Age people 10,000 years ago uh, on arrival in the North American continent and the South American continent and um, uh, a little earlier than that in Australia uh, and in New Zealand and in Madagascar. As soon as human beings turn up, there's a wave of extinction of the so-called megafauna, the biggest beasts, um, a really spectacular extinction. And that's caused by, you know, men with spears. Um, you don't need high technology to have a huge impact on the environment. In fact, in many ways, high technology helps you avoid having a high impact on the environment. So this kind of viewpoint for a lot of people, particularly young people in Australia and around the world, would be absolutely mind-blowing. Like, it's just not the argument that you hear very often. Given so many column uh, inches and so much attention is given to climate issues, and particularly here in Australia, we've just had these bushfires, and, you know, I can tell you this absolutely dominating the news cycle. How come, or can you give us a little bit of an insight as to maybe why this is such a rare message and why this is such a hard sell to environmentalists to convince them of this? As a general rule bad news sells. And uh, for as long as human beings have been around, prophets of doom have been listened to more than optimists. Um, you go right back to the golden age of Greece itself in the Bronze Age, um, sorry, in the early Iron Age. They're, they're, they're lamenting the loss of innocence uh, of the modern world. They're saying it's getting worse, etc., etc. Um, uh, and so every generation has people saying, okay, it's got better so far, but it's about to get a lot worse. Uh, and uh, so there is nothing new in this telling young people that the world is doomed. And I often say to young people, um, when I was your age, in the early 1970s, when I was uh, a teenager, um, I was very, very worried about the future of the world. I was quite interested in all these issues, and I was extremely terrified because the grown-ups told me that the population explosion was unstoppable, famine was inevitable, a cancer epidemic caused by the chemicals that we were putting into the environment was going to shorten our lives, the deserts were advancing, the forests were retreating, the ozone layer was disappearing, acid rain was killing the forests, uh, sperm counts were falling, uh, every conceivable environmental scare was getting worse and worse and worse. And the prospects for um, uh, uh, my future were pretty glib, glo gloomy. And um, uh, actually, if you go back and look at um, the books written at the time by people like Paul Ehrlich, best-selling books, uh, Robert Heilbronner wrote a book saying, you know, the, the outlook for man is bleak. Um, I read this stuff. And it scared the daylights out of me. I thought, oh, my God, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, I'd better, I don't know what kind of job I'm going to get. There aren't obviously going to be any jobs. I believed it. And I never heard adults saying, you know what? Instead of that, it's possible that the world might get richer and cleaner. And we might reduce the rate of extinctions, which we have. The, the number of extinctions has been going down pretty spectacularly in the last few decades because of the work of conservationists. So what I'm trying to tell to young people uh, is, is don't believe every gloomy prognostication because there's a huge vested interest of the news media in appealing to people's pessimisms. Um, uh, and do remember that we can't, you know, the whole point is we can solve some of these problems. Uh, we don't have to have a council of despair. And at the moment, we seem to be telling uh, young people about climate change that there is only bad news, that there is not a possibility of solving this problem. And I simply don't believe that. I think A, we're exaggerating the problem, and B, we're underestimating the power of ingenuity to, to, to deal with the problem. 
Yeah, I think it goes even further than climate change. Like uh, I had this when I was, you know, when I read your book and was talking about it with friends and then I'm getting it again now when I, uh, I've i just finished Enlightenment Now, the Stephen Pinker book, and I'm talking about that with friends. And I've been doing this thing where I just say to them, what do you reckon the life expectancy around the world is? And not a single person I've talked to has overshot the mark. They're, like I've had 40, I've had 50, I've had 55, <laughs> but no one has ever gone above it, which is, which is 71.7. Like I just think this re- relentless pessimism it's not just climate change. It's like it, it goes out into literally every fact, uh, you know, way of measuring where life is going. Yeah, well, um, Hans Rosling, who is something of a godfather to both myself and uh, uh, Steve Pinker uh, in terms of getting to this point about optimism before us as a writer. Um, sadly, he died a few years ago. But Hans Rosling did a rather brilliant experiment before he died, which was to um, ask a thousand people initially in the US, but it was repeated in other countries. Um, what, uh, in the last 20 years, do you think that the percentage of the world population that lives in extreme poverty has doubled, halved, or stayed the same? So that's three possible answers. And uh, about 65% of people said they thought it had doubled, that there were twice as many people in extreme poverty uh, today as, as uh, 20 years before. Uh, and only 5% thought it had halved. Well, the 5% are right. It has halved in that time, roughly speaking. Um, but Rosling then said, if I wrote those three answers on three bananas and threw them into a cage with a chimpanzee in it and measured which banana was picked up by the chimpanzee first, it would get the right answer 33% of the time, whereas human beings are only getting the right answer 5% of the time. How is it possible that human beings know more uh, about the state of humanity, sorry, than chimpanzees know more about the state of humanity than human beings do? They are um, a very smart animal. This is a ridiculous situation. <laughs> and, of course, the answer to his question is uh, because uh, it's not what we don't know that's transfixing us, but what we know for sure that ain't so. Um, you know, the, the, we, we persuade ourselves of things that we think are facts, but in fact are not. Uh, it sort of goes a little bit deeper than that. I think with the environmentalist movement not accepting that optimistic story, often um, I find they've stood in the way of things that would make things better for the planet. For example, nuclear power has almost no emissions. Uh, GM, GM crops. GM crops, yeah. exactly right. Uh, you know, going to use far less land for agriculture. What do you think that is and where do you think that comes from? Uh, right. Well, on, in the case of GM crops, I mean, I've just written a passionate article about golden rice, which is this wonderful invention 20 years ago by Ingo Petrikas in Switzerland of a vitamin enhanced uh, variety of rice that could help uh, deal with enormous numbers of people who are going blind and dying uh, in urban settings in Asia, mainly where they rely on rice for diet and they end up vitamin A deficient and uh, their immune system is compromised as a result. Now, the, the, the sole and principal opposition to this over the last 20 years, which has been very effective and very powerful, has come from Greenpeace. Why would you want children to go on dying? I just don't understand the mentality that says that. Uh, and it's not as if GM crops have proved to be bad for the environment. Quite the reverse. The amount of pesticide used is down by about 37% on average around the world wherever GM crops are introduced. Uh, yields are up, so you need less land. Um, uh, you know, this is a, 
a, a good news technology, and yet uh, environmentalists have opposed it uh, every step of the way. Um, they oppose uh, shale gas extraction, fracking, uh, their, their latest campaigns. Uh, and yet this is the cleanest of the fossil fuels. It's done a terrific job of displacing coal in North America. Um, uh, and uh, it comes from a very small piece of land. So it doesn't need as much land as a lot of the renewables do. It doesn't need as much mining to support its activities. Uh, you know, so I'm sorry, but the environmental movement is often actually making environmental problems worse. I mean, in Europe, we had the case where environmentalists pushed for diesel as a way of getting carbon dioxide emissions down. That resulted in worse air quality than we would otherwise have had uh, if we'd uh, stick, stuck to petrol engines and so on. So um, somebody has to call out these very big, very powerful organizations. I mean, the big three, uh, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and World Wildlife uh, fund between them have something like a billion dollars a year in income. These are giant multinational corporations with well-paid chief executives and big treasury functions and all the usual things that come with Goldman Sachs-like operations. Um, uh, but unlike uh, those businesses, they don't have to actually produce products. Their product is fear and alarm and therefore donations. It's a a, a virtuous circle. Uh, and I think, you know, people have got to start standing up to these organizations and stop treating them as somehow virtuous. I don't think they are virtuous. I think they're genuinely dangerous. Yeah, I would combine exactly what you're saying about Golden Rice, which, by the way, that was an awesome article. With the stuff we were talking about at the start of the interview, where we talk about this hostility to economic growth, I mean, maybe there's some sort of definition breakdown, but when I hear economic growth, I think of poor people getting out of poverty and this idea that we should just, it's this frivolous side thing. I just think it's disgusting. But if you're against economic growth, if you're against the stuff that gets people out of poverty, and then you're also against Golden Rice, which stops, you know, children being blind. I don't know how you can have that vision unless you started to think that humans were innately, uh, you know, they, they operated against a planet. They're a virus on this planet and you don't want to help them proliferate. Well, there is a strong streak of misanthropy in, in uh, the environmental movement whereby anything human beings do or invent is, is a bad thing. And that seems to me a pity. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in in the round, you can't deny that by inventing industrial civilization, we've enabled more people to live on the planet, and that does have pollution consequences and so on. But we've dealt with them. You know, we've made the air cleaner, the water cleaner, etc. And I actually think that if you look at the numbers, if you look at this extraordinary reduction in the amount of stuff we need, and, and countries like the UK and the US are now using less stuff overall um, every year, if you look at minerals, metals, and fuels produced and imported, um, the number is going down, even though the population is still going up and wealth is still going up. It's possible to see a future in which by the end of the century, there are eight, nine, 10 billion people, whatever it is, living with a lighter imprint on the planet than they do today, with a lot more land released for nature, with much larger national parks, with not only a lot, uh, very many fewer species going extinct, uh, but also some species brought back from extinction by genetic technologies and so on. Um, uh, so I actually have a vision of a really fantastic environmental future as a result of technology, as a result of innovation. Um, uh, and on the whole, innovation is good for the environment, not bad. That much is abundantly clear from the last two centuries. Now, Matt, your next book is out in May. It's called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Can you give us a taste of what you're looking at in that one? Well, I've decided it's time to look at innovation as a whole, what, what it is, why it happens to us and not to rabbits and rocks. Um, and 
it's a surprisingly mysterious process, I've decided, uh, concluded, um, because we know it's important. It's a huge part of everyday life. Uh, we get used to having new consumer gadgets uh, all the time. Where do they come from? Who comes up with the, these ideas? You know, what's the process by which it emerges? It's a much more collective, much more distributed process than, than we intend to give it credit for. We say so-and-so invented something and he's a genius and he deserves a Nobel Prize and a patent. Actually, that's very misleading. Most of these things are uh, the result of people collaborating and combining ideas. It's a, it's, a, it's a process of recombination of ideas that produces all this. And it's an inexorable, inevitable uh, process. But I'm, what I'm trying to do in this forthcoming book uh, is just tell stories about all the innovations that have altered our lives over, not all, but many innovations that have altered our lives and draw lessons as to what's happening uh, and what this mysterious process of innovation is. Uh, and I've had a lot of fun writing the book and I hope people are going to enjoy reading it when it comes out in May. I absolutely can't wait to read it. Uh, Matt Ridley, uh, you know, people have got to go out. They've got to read this article. They've got to read your essay on Golden Rice. Uh, and they've got to definitely read the, ra read the Rational Optimist if they haven't already. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Great to talk to you and my best to everyone at the IPA. All right, we've got another round of the Young IPA mm. quiz. Hey, what did we miss? Uh, back on the show is returning champion Gideon Rosner going for the three points. Going for a hat-trick today. A hat-trick. Yeah. All right, Morgan Beck, research fellow. Been a while since you've been on, yeah, but always yeah. good to have you on. Good to see you, Morgan. And, of course, the roof seal himself, Peter Gregory. And I found the dunce hat. That's and when good. I say found the dunce hat, it was sitting here <laughs> when I walked in. Yeah, the last place you'd look. Uh, I, I'm right. nervous for today. I mean, Morgan's actually smart. He actually knows something about <laughs> he's across the world. and everything else. So yeah, he's a world. No, the reason he knows is, it is because he shapes the world. This, this is, is the most devious thing that Gideon's ever said. He's really <laughs> heightened expectations for me. A false yep. sense of yep. security. <laughs> you have right. a, a serious researcher versus, you know, a, a loudmouth. I mean, we'll, we'll see which and is superior. And Pete's also the roof seal. Uh, all right, cool. Sorry, if it is your first quiz, we've got nine questions and a who am I. There is one point on for correct answers, uh, correct answers and one point off for incorrect That's answers. Uh, and the, your buzzers will be your first name. So, yep. question one. Yeah. What song was the number one in the Triple J Hottest 100? Oh. Oh. Roof, roof. Roof, roof. Billie Eilish. Yep. Artist. Um, and the song was that song she does about Bad Guy. Bad Guy. Yes. He's got it. Yes. All right, we're off to a flyer. It. Yeah, it's, uh, that was the first time in years I thought number one should have been number one, but I digress. Uh, okay, so Brexit about to pass in the Ooh. next couple of days. Britain finally out of the EU. What was the original day to the Brexit vote? Oh, no, that's just... Oh, jeez. 1484. <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> what, do we what, get, do we get half a point mean? for the month and year? Uh, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> just keep, keep the energy up. June 2016. He'd be right. So he's got one, <laughs> 0 0.5 oh, of a point. Okay. Yep. Yes. Can, can our graphics team even put 0.5 on the scoreboard? Well, we'll have to talk <laughs> to Scramming and Googling <laughs> on <Yeah>. the <laughs> yeah. What is a decimal? Uh, all right, so I've for just question... just broke the IPA computer. <laughs> what is a decimal? <laughs> oh, I apologise, I bought <laughs> <laughs> Question three. How many times in total was Brexit officially delayed? Gideon. Gideon. 9,000. Okay, so... Yeah, is that also 2016? I would say <laughs> yeah. twice. I'm not going to take points off for those two. I would say twice. That were funny. Uh, you'd be incorrect. Uh, Does anyone want to have another guess? Um, negative 0.5. Mm, four. Oh, Morgan. Morgan. Four. No. Uh, roof, roof. Roof, roof. Let's go for three. He's correct. <laughs> 
Thanks, fellas. How do you know that, Pete? Mm. I didn't understand. The Goldilocks answer has paid off. <laughs> well, <laughs> well hand, hand, hold the questions away a little oh, bit. Sorry. I, I, there's a danger. I don't want to. Oh, yeah, this is a big winning all this time. Yeah, 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 there we go. That, I, this I, is the primary I was sitting in that seat last time. This is a primary I'm on a roster. I cannot tell you. I didn't sit there. Yeah, you were skulking around the desk. I was like, he's going to read the questions, but no. All right. Question number four. We're up to. All right. Closest to the mark of Kobe Bryant dying this week. Very sad day. Uh, for me, yeah, how are you dealing with that? It, I, it no, actually it's hit a serious me. Question. It actually hit me way harder than I thought it would. Can I tell you? I used to think like people who used to go on about the day that Kurt Cobain died and everything else. I thought they were full of rubbish. But when Anthony Bourdain died, I couldn't speak for like a solid hour. It's actually yeah. a really harrowing thing. No, I was, just, I was pretty flat for the whole morning. Yeah, I can like imagine. Such a I thought of you. Personality. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm going to get we're sad tolerant and, uh, and, and kind workplace Thank here you, at the RPA. All right, I'm going to get sad if I think about it too much. Yeah. Sorry, closest yeah. to the mark. Yeah. How many points did Kobe Bryant score in his NBA career? Oh, Gideon. That is. Gideon. 200. 200? Okay, uh, a few more than that. Mork, uh, 82 game season. Oh, he is not a career. basketball fan. <laughs> 15,000. 15,000? Oh, yeah. 20,000. It is 33,643. Oh, I was clearly the closest. closest. Uh, I guess they had a 20-year career. Yeah, 20-year yeah. career. Uh, fourth all time. Yeah. Uh, and damn it, my quiz, my questions. How many championships did Kobe Bryant win? Morgan. Morgan. I believe it was five championships. It was indeed five Jeez, championships. Triple J and sport questions. This is, this is rigged <laughs> against Rosner. <isn't> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, you've always got the who am I, and there's a few more political ones coming up. So right. quick score check. Gideon on if negative. If health and fitness questions, I'll be a goner. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll scrap the quiz. Uh, so Gideon's on negative 0.5. Morgan is on zero. Pete. Flying away on three points. On oh, so three points? He's on three points. The roof's I'm not sure that's true, but let's all right, stick well, with it. What would not be true? <laughs> Let me get... <laughs> no, nah, I'm sure it's right. I'm, I'm sure, sure it's right. right. We're all sure it's right. I've got the get dunce that dunce hat away no. from me. Uh, all right, so uh, what does P- Tanya Plibersek want all Australian students to be taught in Gideon. schools? Gideon. Uh, a Pledge of Allegiance Socialism. or Patriotism of some kind? Oh, no, she's good. She's good on this. this Gideon is, like, is correct. Yeah, yeah. Is, is she on good on this, or do politicians just are, are they just politicians? So I hear that she's been good on this for a, a while, um, but right. it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me. A cynic in me says it's her trying to cast off the inner city member for Sydney sort of yeah. image. Maybe, but I mean, for like, she's literally been in favour of the citizenship pledge for more students for years. Yeah, I, uh, I don't, don't no, buy I'm it. Not, I'm not. I'm not Well, uh, she's it's allegiance been... to the Queen, or it's not worth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We asked our politicians to. Respond to democracy. Yeah. Maybe that's what she's doing. We can't then crack it out when they. No, no, yep. I'm not quite told in the pledge. I, mean, I think that's a bit, a bit sort of artificial, but yeah, patriotism shouldn't be a left right yeah. issue. We're all patriots. All right. But the right are more patriotic. Very good point. And we'll, <laughs> all right, so next one up. Uh, why did Yale University scrap Introduction to Art History Renaissance to the present? Get in. Get in. Because it was too white and. Uh, too what, sorry? White and. Um, <laughs> You know, the you have to do that same reflection for the rest. Style. Yes, pale mail style. I have to speak is like a, like a crooked southern governor. Do I? <laughs> yeah. It's too hot. Too, too white. Male. Too male. Uh, yes, that is the reason they're scrapping it. It's one of the most beloved courses that Yale had apparently, and then it's gone because pale mail and style. Mm. Uh, well, the students are racist. They love white people things. I mean, that's obviously uh, what it's uh, what what the the problem. That's is. That's the takeaway I've got. The right, white so supremacists. Gideon making a quick run for it. He's now mm. up to one point five. Peter Gregory still on three. No, you're on two point five. My bad. Uh, Gideon. So uh, 2.5 versus 2.5, 3, 0. Uh, all right, so how many Australian Opens has Rafael Nadal won? Morgan. <sighs> Morgan. Come on. Five. Five oh. is incorrect. Why, why do I guess when I, I know there's <laughs> points fruit. taken away? <laughs> <laughs> That's the strategy. There see? is one. 
You would have thought it's way more than that, but uh, yeah, Rafael Nadal, the winner of not that good only one oh. on that surface. On <laughs> <the> <laughs> tennis. That's true. Uh, I thought I thought we were just going to wade into some serious Federer v Nadal territory, and no. I would definitely get Gideon to answer. All right, Gideon, this is a sport question. I reckon you might actually get third sport question. This is. <laughs> This isn't the bloody Institute of uh, oh, Armchair Sports sport. or something. <laughs> this be. isn't Barstool Sports. I, I would be paid so much podcast. more otherwise. All right. Uh, a team from which country signed Israel Folau to a contract Gideon. this morning? Gideon. France. I told you you'd get it. Well on you. All right. Now, for an unprecedented bonus point at the end of this round, oh. what was the name of the team? No points off, but bonus point if you can get it. Absolutely no idea. Oh, I saw oh, it last night on like Sky. This is your, you should know this, Gideon. This is your brief, mate. I know, I know about Fal- I wouldn't. Well, know I did read it, but I'm not. I'm not right, playing the Catalan Dragons. So uh, <laughs> coming into the Who Am I? Peter's on Catalan four. Dragons. Gideon is on three point five, and so Morgan 3.5 is on three point five. And G- I've, I've def- <laughs> there is definitely no way this is correct. Yeah. I'll take that. I think I've been good at it, but I've also probably been terrible at it. So <laughs> for all the marvels, because I've got no idea who's winning, Morgan's right back in it. Oh, okay. Uh, no, so all right. So assuming it is three point five to Gideon and Pete is on four yep. and Morgan is on negative one, yep. the who am I is still in play for everyone? Yeah, it's going to come down. Right. Okay, so I need to I need to get it first go. You need to do the Pat Hannaford uh, yeah. hail mary. If you get yeah. it first go, you can have it. Okay, yep. who am I? I was assassinated seventy two years ago this Thursday. Morgan. Morgan. Now yeah, let's figure out what seventy two <laughs> years ago was. Nine fifty seven. Mm, good at oh, maths Was it? Oh, don't know, Pete 1947 <laughs> Hey, what? It's 2020 Yeah. Oh, it's 2020 <laughs> I thought it was 2019 Ah, uh, jeez I'm, I'm drawing a blank on Alright, 72 years ago 1948 There we go He's got it Any guesses? I'm trying I'm, yep. I'm formulating a guess mm-hmm. I'm thinking about people As long as it's out existed. loud Just got to keep that in <laughs> Existed in that the period of time The podcast can only go for an hour no, more yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll have to pass on that one. I can't, right. I can't think of it. Okay, for four points, yeah. my first job was a lawyer. Gideon. No idea. Gideon. Mahatma Gandhi? Oh. He's got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that is amazing. Three feet confirmed. What's the thought process? How'd you get that? Because I thought, well, 1948, I thought, what happened in 1948? Uh, Establishment of Israel and India, I think, was in '48, and the partition of India and Pakistan. Yeah. And Anna knew Gandhi was a lawyer, so yeah. Yeah, there we go. There the we go. peek behind the curtain that is the uh, ever quick ah, mind of Gideon Rosner. Okay, let's ask five sports questions next week. All right, I'll, I'll keep flooding the market <laughs> yeah, yeah, to get yeah. Peter Gregory back on top. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since his last win, but anyway, Gideon, congratulations, Morgan, thanks for playing. Yeah. And uh, we've got more show for you coming up after this. Let's do it. All right, thank you to uh, Matt Ridley and, uh, you know, very... I thought you were going to win that quiz, to be honest. I thought uh, you'd mm. come in at the end and really, you know, take take it from Gideon. Yeah, well, it, you know, as you rightly pointed out, there was lots of sports questions, which was good. Yeah, I've tried to play to a home field advantage, but... <laughs> he, got, he got Gandhi pretty early. He got Gandhi very early. Mm. All right, uh, let us go to some stories that have made us laugh this week. Now, Pete. Yeah, mate. Uh, talk to us. Okay, BBC Today's program. <laughs> not, that was not as good a segue. So one into the Matt really interview. I'll be the first to admit. That's fair enough. As long as you can understand your own flaws, that's fine. So <laughs> oh, I'm very and, understanding my own flaws. And that's Frankie, fine. on today's uh, BBC's Today program. Now she is the head of the Chartered Management Institute in the United Kingdom. And like I googled, what the hell is that? It is an accredited professional institution for management based in the United Kingdom. So it literally could be anything. Now she said on BBC Today's program during the week. A lot of women, in particular, feel left out. They don't. So, she was talking about uh, talking about cricket and footy in the workplace. She said a lot of women, in particular, feel left left out. They don't follow those sports, and they don't like being either forced to talk about them 
or not being included. So she was on the radio suggesting that workplaces cut back, not banned, but cut back talking about footy and cricket in the workplace. Yeah. Now, Pete, Here we go. are females able to talk about sport? Well, I always thought they were. <laughs> and is Anne Frankie going to have to fall on her sword for clearly being absolutely sexist like heaps of other people would be in that situation. That's my question. Uh, now, the other thing uh, I want to talk about. So uh, here's an actual quote from her. So she goes, it's very easy for it to escalate from VAR talk. Now, for the uninitiated, VAR, apparently, I didn't know it either, but it's video assistant refereeing. Mm. So is that like instant replays? Yeah, it's like when they score Pete a goal. Pete knows about more soccer than I do. And they check if it's offside or something. Okay, sorry. And they just introduced it. All right, so it's it's very easy for it to escalate from instant replay chat to <laughs> slapping each other on the back and talking about their conquests at the weekend. <laughs> That's right. Now, could you imagine? (laughs) Could you imagine in like a group of like four dudes you work with, someone just going like, "Do you watch a game last night?" And someone going like, "Couldn't. (laughs) You won't believe what I was doing instead." It's like, okay, Gary, we get it. (laughs) Not the time. Exactly. Never the time. Never the time, Gary. Yeah. Uh, The other part I like about it uh, is uh, I can't remember what I like about it. (laughs) Well, my question (laughs) was. I've lost my place. Go. My question about this: this whole thing is basically why rich people so stupid. Like, this woman would get paid so much. Yeah. And, like, this is... And she's never been in a workplace in her life. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, The other part... No, so this is the part I like. So in the article, they they try to get a few quotes from other people that might slam it. And one person they talk to is former minister Tracy Crouch. But here was her uh, former title. Former sports gambling charities and loneliness minister. (laughs) That is quite what a combo. A weird combo that is. <laughs> what do you, how do you divide your workday? Yeah. So you've got gambling and then you've got the loneliness that comes yeah. afterwards. Gambling, win. sports, charities and loneliness. Don't all three of them figure out the fourth? We can only be... If you give people sports, gambling and charities, they're not lonely yeah, anymore. Yeah, they've got heaps going on. Yeah, I mean, that's just like, look, we've got four more things. We've only got one more ministership. <laughs> it's put them all together. <laughs> Minister yeah. for miscellaneous. Yeah. Whatever's left. Minister for someone said no. All right. uh, I got another story uh, coming out of the UK as well. So Professor Mary Beard is uh, a author, academic, and BBC presenter. What a combo. And Yeah, another one. That's the uh, the sports gambling charities and loneliness ministers of the uh, BBC. But she is presenting a new program called The Shock of the Nude. Now, everyone (laughs) slow down. (laughs) It's not that kind of podcast. Everyone slow down. Everyone slow down. But uh, to drum up a bit of hype, I guess she's talking about what she views as like, you know, it's like an art program about nudes and people are like, why are you doing this <laughs> with taxpayer money? What's going on, Mary? Yeah, <laughs> what's what's the deal? Anyway, so Mary's actually come out with a pretty damn good quote, which is, uh, she says that art is basically, quote, soft porn for the elite. <laughs> Nudes in art. That's not what the nude is always, in, that's what the nude is always in danger of being. Always? Yeah. Always in danger. Just yeah. pornography. Like the- you just go to the Louvre and you're just like, this is a filth museum. <laughs> this, is a, this is a smut factory. <laughs> yeah, look, Mary, I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to you. No one is going to the National Museum. Yep. Like I have heard, rumour has it that there are images of naked women on the internet. <laughs> exactly. And no one is paying 20 bucks to get to the museum yeah. to watch I, porn. Yeah, I just thought she'd walked into a cinema that was like screening like 50 Shades of Grey or something and gone yeah. like, this gallery's taken a turn for yeah. the worse since I was last in here. No, so come on, Mary. Uh, anyway, uh, so that is that story. Anyway, last story we got, Pete. Well... More nudity, basically. That's what we're talking about here. This is here. a smart factory. This Almost podcast nudity. is a smart factory. We have disgraced a good name of Matt Ridley by associating him with this product. Apparently sex sells. So, look, this was almost a villain, but I really wanted to nail that bloke who helps a million people a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> this guy was almost a villain. He's an Italian policeman. Uh, yeah. His name's Albert. Save a few more lives and then Peter Gregory will put you in his crosshairs. Then you'll get you know the, what you really deserve. Alberto Muraglia found himself a laughing stock in Italy in 2015 after he was caught clocking onto 
on to work in his police job in his undies. So he was caught doing that on CCTV. It's part of a sting operation. It went national. He lives in an apartment above his police station in San Remo in the northern region of Liguria. Uh, and it turns out that sometimes he nips down, clocks on in his jocks, and then goes back upstairs to put his uniform on. Now, the court case was on this week to find out whether he was defrauding the state. His lawyer said the fact that he was in his civilian clothes Civilian clothes, that's a bit of a stretch, mate. Uh, does not matter because putting Don't on a uniform... Don't get much more civilian. It's yeah. definitely not an official uniform. If, yeah. you were, if you call the police and someone just rocks up in their jocks... Well, he said his lawyer has claimed that Alberto had foiled a robbery in only his undies before. So that was part of his argument. Anyway, he got off uh, and it's the national outcry in Italy because this bloke didn't get uh, in trouble. Well, be, the other part for me is that it now brings in a precedent that getting dressed for work is actually part of your job mm. and you should be paid for it, yeah. which now means that I'm going to turn up to work here every single day dressed as a 17th century French duke <laughs> and just take three and a half hours to get ready and just absolutely rake it in. As long as you don't turn up in your undies, <laughs> yeah. I don't mind. Uh, I like this. So uh, the then Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi, called it crazy and said officials who bunked off work destroyed the credibility of the public service, to which I'd say... Officials that come to work on time also destroy the credibility of the public service. Uh, and I've got another one here. So I want to ask you, Pete, mm. there's so many great stories about famous uh, public servants getting up to getting away with uh, not coming up to work mm. or, you know, <laughs> clocking. <laughs> this kind of Part stuff. of your billable hours is you getting dressed and making toast. Yep. Uh, where does this rank in your all-time best? Well, this is up there. I like it because as people watching on YouTube and Facebook would have seen, we've got an image of him in his undies and he's a bit fat and that's funny. <laughs> but he just looks funny, all right? This, this is highbrow this stuff. Fat, fat police. But my favourite is the French government uh, in uh, the city of Toulon a few years ago. I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, it came, turned out, turned up. What was it? It turned out there were some 30 bureaucrats in that city who were paid for more than 25 years after they privatised the water authority, but they just kept paying the workers. <laughs> it's like what a win. 25 years. And, uh, 25 years, no one thought, where is this money going? Yeah. And none of them said, oh, actually, we don't work anymore. Like, yeah. They all just kept taking it. So that was great. But um, also there was a French public servant who was given a week to change the font of her report and it took 25 seconds. <laughs> So yeah, that's well, another good one. That's a good one. All right, my, good my number one all time uh, is Joaquin Garcia, the Spanish guy. Uh, people might remember this story. He <laughs> figured out that one part of his job, like he was working in a wastewater treatment plant mm. and one part of his job thought uh, he was working at the water company. Yes. Yeah, sorry. The local authorities thought he was working at the water company. The water company thought company thought he was working at the, uh, waste or the, the water company. And so... He just didn't turn up to either of those jobs for six years, and they only found out when they were getting. They only found out about this when they turned up to give him a long-term service <laughs> check. Why did he go? Just mail it to me. I can't go. What about the Christmas party? I think that was surprising him. They were just gonna like surprise him at his desk. He's not here. Where is he? He's not at the other place yeah. either. Oh, why have we been paying this guy? What about like the Christmas party and stuff? He just never turned just up. Just never turns up. There you go. What was his name? Uh, Joaquin Garcia. Come what on, Joaquin. Uh, all right, that is it for the show this week. Thanks again to Matt Ridley mm. and Evan Mulholland. Uh, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We're available on all podcast apps and uh, you can also watch on YouTube as Pete alluded to. Mm -hmm. We're on YouTube, on the IPA Facebook page and also the Generation Liberty for, uh, YouTube page as well. And we're also on Facebook Live. Uh, and if you're not already a member of Generation Liberty here at the IPA, you can sign up at ipa.org.au slash join. We've got a bunch of memberships as well. Make sure you're liking the Facebook page. Yep. Uh, am I missing anything? Instagram. Instagram page, Generation Liberty IPA. Yep. Is that all? Uh, I think <laughs> I that's pretty much sure it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. See you guys next week.